Heterodorks, heterodoxdorks. Hey, Turfs and Trannies. This is Nina, co-host of Heterodorks. And this is Corinna Cohn, also the co-host. And uh, Nina, I think we have a special guest heterodork today. We do. It's Derek Jensen. Oh. Well, thanks for having me. <laughs> He's just some random guy. Derek Jensen. I guess I should introduce him properly. <laughs> Derek is a writer of how many books have you written? Um, I think 27. Oh, my God. All right. Author of 27 books, which have been translated into some of them have been translated into multiple languages, right? Some of them? Probably, I don't know, probably. Well, should I puff or should I tell the truth? I think if it if I tell the truth, it's probably about 10 languages. And if I puff, then it's 15. All right, cool. So uh, he's published hundreds of books, which have been translated into thousands of languages. That's right. Impressive, if true. Yes. Uh, and he's what I would call an environmentalist, except that the word environmentalist is becoming, or maybe has already become as useful as the word feminist. As I was making notes for things to ask you, I was I was just watching your most recent video clip where you talked about stabbing, still stabbing the body and the difficulty of, I mean, I guess what's happened is the environmental movement as it is now is detached from anything that we would call real environmentalism. It's performative and kind of religious. Is, is that well, what, what I would say, well, the, I'm going to give you two versions. One is the untrue version. The other is the true version. Okay. The untrue version is that there has been a sort of coup in environmentalism over the past 30 years or so, where it has been transformed from being about saving wild places and wild beings and made into a being about sustaining this destructive culture. And that's true as far as it goes. But the way that that's not true is that this rift in environmentalism actually goes further back. You had this fight really going back in the late 19th, early 20th century between Gifford Pinchot and John Muir, where John Muir was about protecting wild places for their own sake. And Gifford Pinchot was about what he called wise use, which is not really the same as wise use today, but it's still about uh, we need to protect nature because uh, forests will clean water and they will make it so it doesn't flood as much and it will provide what today they call ecosystem services. So the, the the rift actually goes back further than 30 years. That was the lie I told is that it, it starts 30 years ago. But the truth is it has really accelerated the last 30 years. And today you can almost not recognize much of the environmental movement because it's become about, quote, sustaining this destructive culture. Oh, and I want to tell one quick story about this that that just is is irreverent and stupid enough that it might it might fit um, with with the sort of tone that that I've been led to believe is is here. We're that, lying also, but go on. Um, in 1992, there was the Rio Earth Summit, if you remember, which was this all big deal about how things are going to change so much. And of course, everybody who knew anything knew that this was just a bunch of crap. Before it happened, there was a there was a tour where where various representatives from the United States delegation to the United Nations went around the country 
taking public input on the U.S. position. The U.S. position was we need to push for sustainable development, which is an oxymoron. It is, it's just it's nonsense. And when they got to Spokane, Washington, where I lived, the public input was universal that we think sustainable development's a terrible idea. We need to protect wild nature. This is all nonsense. So we all like for about an hour and a half or something, we all gave our input. And then afterwards, the United Nations, the United States representative to the UN that was the representative from who was there sat up on stage and said, thank you all for supporting the United States position on sustainable development. And that's, you know, sort of standard story of public input. And um, the, the kicker to this is after the thing was over, I talked to the woman who had set it up and who was his host when he was there. And she said that before the evening, he got so drunk that she had to help him to his seat before the event started. So this is just one of the best examples I can think of of how the public input process works, where not only does the guy ignore you, but he's so incoherent through mind-altering substances that he has no idea what we actually said. It's just a perfect example of the public input process. And can we stop for just a moment because um, there is a bear banging on my window and I need to go uh, ask the bear to stop. It's a yeah. bit distracting. Yeah. If, if, if possible, can you bring your, your camera and show us your bear? Oh, yeah. Yeah. Yeah, I've, I've heard the banging. I was wondering what that was. Yeah. Um, this is Corinna here. I am editing this episode, and I just wanted to let you know that at this point, Derek took his laptop and carried it down to the front step of his beautiful California home and showed us that there were three young bears that were trying to get into his house. One of them was small, one of them was large, and one of them was just the right size. But it was really bizarre having the interview interrupted so that Derek Jensen could chase bears off of his front stoop. While this was happening, we took a little break and talked about the destruction of bear habitat. Uh, and this was punctuated by Derek sort of moving around the house. So we are going to cut that part out and jump you back into the rest of the episode. Thanks for listening. Okay. And when I was in my 20s, I cried pretty much every day because I was so intentionally cultivated denial of what was happening to other species. So I was, yeah. I was in a constant state. Then, then I decided like in my 30s that if I was going to stay alive, I had to intentionally create denial for myself that seemed to come to other people naturally in order to, yeah, in order to survive till I was older. So I've made a, consci a conscientious choice to deny not, not, I mean, it's not literal denial because intellectually, I don't intellectually deny it, but I've made a, like a break with my own sensitivity, my own openness. I've hardened my heart. Yeah. It's, uh, it's a difficult thing. And I hear what you're saying. And 
I do that on some level that I'll talk about in a moment, but I, I, there's another level at which I can't do it entirely because um, I realize that I can take time off and they can't, that they don't really have that luxury. Um, the, the salmon going extinct don't have that luxury. The salmon, you know, beating up against dams. And so the fact that I have that luxury means I don't, uh, well, there's, there's more to it. Part of it also is a way that I do participate in that is that I live in this beautiful forest. And, um, when I used to do a lot of touring, I would every time be shocked when I would fly out of here because living here in this little paradise, I can pretend that this is what it's like everywhere. And then I would get in an airplane and see that there are, you know, clear cuts. It's a checkerboard pattern of clear cuts everywhere. And, and then on another level, I mean, that there, there are, there are places that I can't, I can't, I can't, I can't go that I remember 20 years ago, I saw this, um, video, this, this, uh, documentary on HBO about how humans treat non-humans the world over. And it was very powerful, but there was, there, there were a couple of scenes that I wish I would never have seen because I have not been able to get them out of my head for just how horrific they were. Um, and so there, are, yes, I do write about these difficult issues and I attend to them a lot, but there are, there are places that I can't go. For example, I can't really go much to leg hold trapping. Mm. Um, and, and I've seen bears here who have had uh, withered legs from having been caught in a trap and then, and then escaped. And uh, some of those, I mean, they lived fuller lives, but you know, one, one leg would be, would be a little peg basically. And um, and I can't, I can think about those individuals when I see them, but when they go away, it's like, I can't, I can't think about that happening on a larger scale. And, and, and another interesting thing, you know, I, I don't know if this is taking the light tone that you normally take. I guess it's not. No, this is already, I already feel more like crying than I ever have, uh, um, while being on the podcast. This is the shit that just gets me and it's just. Like, well, we can, we can, I'll say one more thing and then we can go light. Cause I have, I mean, that's, well, I'll, I'll say something else about that in a second, but, but one more sort of heavy thing is that, or this isn't heavy, but it's very interesting writing about these things. And probably the same thing is true for you in, for both of you, probably in your own work that when I'm actually writing about them, when I'm researching them, I cry a lot, but when I'm actually writing, I can write this horrific scene and I'm usually paying so much attention to the details of how do I structure this sentence that I'm not attending to the horrors then. So I'm actually at that point, it perhaps is a form of denial because I'm simply attending to all the technical 
do I invert this sentence structure? Do I put a comma here? And so it's some of that stuff when I read it later, it's like, holy crap, that really makes me cry. But when I'm actually writing it, a lot of times it's just, how do I do it? And we can do the same. And one of the ways this applies, and this is going to take us to the to the sort of humor stuff, is that, you know, you could if you make a joke about some really horrible thing, and I'm not judging you for that, I have, we could probably have a contest for who has made the most tasteless jokes. And I think it might be, uh, we might all, we might all get gold medals on it. But anyway, um, when I'm making a joke, even if it's about some horrific substance, I'm more worried about the timing of the joke, making sure that the punchline is at the end. You know, you got you got to instead of the fact that I just made a joke about, I don't know, Henry VIII killing Anne Boleyn or some, you know, is it too soon to make that joke? Um, too soon, yeah. Yeah, it's too soon <laughs> for Henry VIII and Anne Boleyn. Um, yeah, and and there's a great line by Oscar Wilde. Um, if you want to tell people the truth, make them laugh. Otherwise they'll kill you. And I've always loved that. Uh, and so when I used to do a lot of talks about, uh, about the murder of the planet, I put out a CD called stand up tragedy. Cause somebody, one of my talks said, that's basically what I do. And so I would be, you know, talking about the murder of the planet and interspersing it with all sorts of jokes and um there's that that line by uh emma goldman uh if i can't dance i don't want to be part of your revolution and i've always hated that line in part because i don't like dancing um but uh but i've changed it so to a way that i like it which is if i can't laugh i don't want to be part of your revolution oh i i feel that i i really feel that you have to have some ability to and and not just laugh at other people. You have to have enough introspection to be able to laugh at yourself as well. Oh, and I think laughing at oneself is, I think that's that's often the, uh, for me at least, that's the that's my favorite mode to go for comedy. Um, in part because then, especially in these days of sort of political correctness and SJWs destroying everything that, uh, I mean, if you're making a joke about yourself, I mean, they can't really come after you for that. Oh, they, they can. They do. Yeah, they, they will. Yeah. So I've never, I've never witnessed as much humorlessness, humorlessness as I am witnessing right now. You know, I interviewed uh, Graham Linehan about specifically wow. about I'm sorry, go ahead. Uh, that's a that's a transition. Oh, sorry, go <laughs> ahead. <laughs> Graham Linehan specifically about humor. And one of the things we were talking about is we were trying to come up with the most offensive jokes that each of us had told in public. Like in the IT crowd, my gosh, he goes, he 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 makes fun of uh people being cross-eyed. He has an episode about that. Uh, he, there's the one about making fun of the person pretending to be disabled so they can use the bathroom. And then, and, and so we were talking about, I mean, of course there are some limits on what one should make jokes about, but it's, I'm trying to think of the most offensive jokes I've told. Um, I mean, this is, this is not a joke that was told 
that I didn't tell, but it was a joke that somebody told about me that was pretty offensive. And I was not laughing at the time, but 40 years later, I think it's kind of funny. I have Crohn's disease. And one of the side effects of Crohn's disease, you have diarrhea. And I was on the, the track team and I was going to the bathroom before one of our track meets and um, I had explosive diarrhea. And so my nickname on the track team, my best friend gave this to me, became Kid Kaboom. <laughs> I was I was not pleased at the time, but 40 years later, it's pretty that's pretty witty. Um and and all things considered, it's pretty gentle. Yeah. Yeah. Um anyway, so so I I am a big, big fan. This I have never before admitted this in public, but Okay, here's my caveat. I think Jimmy Carr is incredibly offensive. I also think he's sometimes pretty damn funny. And there was one line where Jimmy Carr was going back and forth with somebody in the audience, and he said something really offensive to her, and then he stopped and he said, you know, there is a line in comedy, and I think I just crossed it. And and that's it. You know, one of the things you do in comedy is you want to – I mean, you do, you push that absurdity and you make fun of things. And I don't know. Anyway, I'm just rambling. So, yeah. so well, I don't, I don't really like to talk about humor. I prefer to, to do it rather than talk about it. Not that I'm particularly funny in audio, but I've made some funny cartoons in my life and that's enough for me, but I had questions for you. First of all, I want, I want the listeners to know your, your line, your sort of, summation which is that civilization is killing the planet is that correct yeah and and within the past year or so or a couple of years i have figured out a way to sum up my 27 books in one sentence with a semicolon which is um this way of living will not last and when it's over i would prefer that there is more of the world left rather than less that's pretty much it um okay and you know obviously there are implications of that that I string out for tens of thousands of words. So you're both uh, in this, I don't know, I guess, I guess I, we used to call this deep ecology. Uh, the idea that the planet, the non-human planet deserves to exist for its own sake and not merely as a service to human beings. Uh, yeah, and, and we have to say that. What? It's extraordinary that we even have to say that. I know. I, mean, I, I agree. I agree. Especially the sociopathology of this culture. I agree. You and I differ. You, I, I'm, I think you and I differ primarily in that I'm a pretty active antinatalist. Or not active anti. I'm not active in anything anymore. But that for you're, me... You're not having babies. Yes. But I also wish other people wouldn't do that either, which makes me a horrible person in the human world. Oh, see, uh, there's, okay, there's a great example of, okay, I, I don't actually care if other people individually have babies, but that's only because I think what we do personally, there's so many babies being born that one more doesn't really matter that much. But having said that, one of the things I used to talk about all the time is I used to say, we need to, we need to understand that there are too many humans on the planet. And then the, the joke I would tell about that is as soon as you say that there are too many humans on the planet, 
well, then people presume that you must hate babies. And but I, I do hate babies. Actually, I do hate babies too, except, <laughs> except with this really good barbecue sauce out of Kansas City. Actually, I, I think that was over the line, Derek, because North Carolina barbecue sauce is way better with baby. You know, this may be a place that we have a significant disagreement because I will. This, Kansas City barbecue is a hill I'm going to die on. But I, I can respect I can respect the difference here. Well, um, as as far as hills to die on, I'm going to go talk to my solicitor about that allegation. <laughs> okay. Anyway, <laughs> uh, also I just want to say that that if I were to run for president, I would run on a a platform of vasectomies on the house, and um, my my motto would be a snip in every sack. Nice. I'd support that. If I were to run for emperor of the world, or I guess empress, actually, have you ever thought about like, if you could, if you could make one law, what would that be? Cause I actually thought of one law. If I could only have one worldwide law, it would be you kill it, you eat it. Oh, and this would be spelled with a U, the letter U, mm-hmm. you kill it, you eat it. No, Nina, I can't do that. Like I've got, I've got a little fly trap I set out in the kitchen <laughs> and there's no way I'm eating those things. Yeah. Well, see civilization, this is what it does. What if we, what if we reversed it? You eat it, you kill it. No. So you kill. So does this, do, I'm wondering, would, does if, this mean that you have to kill everything you eat or is it just, if you kill it, you have to eat it? It, it's both. So yeah, you have to kill everything you eat, but also you murder someone, you're eating them. Huh. You know, wars, you're eating that. I think that this would do wonders for the roadkill problem as well. Yeah, well, there's there's these vague situations of like, well, then how do we define, ki- you know, is it directly killing or indirectly I'm killing? Right. We're was, killing the planet. We have to eat the planet. That's, stuff I, was like just, that. I was just thinking that uh, lawyers would, would have a a great time with that in terms of finding loopholes, et cetera, et cetera. Yeah. Well, my other law after that, that's the first law. The second law is I would ban lawnmowers. So if you, if you have a lawn, you have to use goats or a scythe or some other system other than lawnmowers. That's probably going to be more popular. I should probably just run for Everest on that platform. Yeah. Um, Anyway, so I'm not I'm not an anti-natalist, but I am a. Uh, you're not anti. You're pro anti-natalist, but you're not actually anti-natalist. You're anti-natalist adjacent. <laughs> anti-natalist ally. <laughs> exactly. Um, I, well, no, I'm more than an ally because you know I got the I got I got a vasectomy when I was I don't know forty or something, and it was one of the smartest things I ever did. That's one thing I, I, I call thinking, that a half commitment. <laughs> when I was in my early 20s, I was thinking that a great way to approach population would be to give people money for to be sterilized, except it would have to be enough that it's not classist. Because if it's like, I mean, in India for a while, this was pretty terrible. They were giving people transistor radios. And that's just, that's horrible. And and yet in this country, they give you significant tax breaks for having 
babies. Yeah, they yeah, pay yeah. you for having them, which is also terrible. Yeah. So if you make it enough that if, you know, you get a vasectomy when you're 20, it's like, I don't know, then it's, it's enough money that a lot of people would do it. Or, you know, I don't know if you know about this. It's pretty cool. Iran had a big population problem and they, one of the ways they addressed it was by making birth control cool by writing into soap operas plots involving uh, like the hero would get a vasectomy. That's not and, Iran, is it? I thought that happened in uh, Mexico or South America that there were soap operas that did that, not Iran. Oh, I, I heard, heard Iran. Iran. I heard Iran back in the 80s. Oh, okay. Well, there's other, I mean, I've heard of, um, I don't know, Latin American soap operas that do that. But the, the problem with this is it will never happen and it will never work. And that is the issue with every solution that we've ever thought of for anything you are so wrong you are so wrong really do tell well i had this idea a few years ago when tumblr was starting to convince young people to mutilate their genitals or to take um hormone suppressants that would permanently uh, sterilize them and so far this is working out really well no, it's not. Not from a population perspective. This drives me crazy. There's there's like a subset of radical feminists who seem to think that the gender ideolo ideology is designed to stop population or they think that COVID vaccines like they, they seem to think that somehow human population is declining and that we're in danger. We're going to be dangerously underpopulated from these movements. And no, this is not going to happen. This is not going to solve the problem. The tiny, tiny little dent made from the horrible human psychic suffering of this movement is doing nothing in the, in the large scale problem of human overpopulation. So no, that's a totally ineffective system, as are all the other population curbing systems. Particularly, I mean, at least at least voluntary human extinction is completely peaceful and completely voluntary. And um, also completely ineffective and will never work. Yeah. The rest of them, the rest of them are also ineffective and will never work, but they involve more suffering and, and social horror. There are 385,000 babies born each day and population goes up. Uh, population increases every day by about 200,000, 180 to 200,000. It's more than that. About 200,000 extra population every day. And that's that's from 2012. So yes, I did. I'm such a nerd. I, I, I do this sort of math all the time. And when people started saying this thing about how COVID is going to reduce population, it's like, like 7,000 deaths a day, 10,000 deaths a day. So I actually did the math, even Stalingrad, the Battle of Stalingrad in World War II, which was one of the worst meat grinders in history, the population of the world actually went up during the Battle of Stalingrad. And this is the power of exponential growth and the power of just huge numbers that I don't know. I, I think the last time I could be wrong, but I think the last time the population actually decreased was uh, Black Death. Correct. Or that's my understanding as well. I wasn't there, but that's my understanding. Yeah. It's either that or one of the bubonic plagues. It's Well, they're the same thing. The bubonic plague is, is, the, is the Black Death. Yeah. Are we sure? Pretty sure. 
Okay. Well, in, in any case, it's a long time ago. And then what's going to happen, because we even talk about this, is people are going to go, oh, gosh, you hate people. But the truth is that whatever humans live in the future are going to be horrified at what is happening to the planet. And it doesn't help to pretend the population continue, continue to increase forever. That doesn't help. One of the one of the stupid complaints that was made about me for a long time is that I want to kill six billion people, and that's like telling an oncologist that they want people to die of cancer because they're making a diagnosis. It just it frustrates me because it's so easy and cheap. And you know. When Jeff Gibbs made Planet of the Humans, which I thought was a really good movie, um, one of the complaints, because he mentions population, that's all he does. He mentions population. He ties it to consumption, too, of course. But because he does that, one of the complaints, they actually said in major news outlets that he doesn't want African people to have sex. I was like, this is what happens as soon as you talk about this issue at all, is people presume... I mean, that's why I went to the to the eating babies joke was because the response to it was just so absurd. It doesn't matter if you say, hey, you know, it it might be a good idea to think about the fact that there are too many people on the planet. Since they go ahead and accuse you of being of hating babies anyway, you may as well make a joke out of it. Yes. And and back to the gender thing, since we're in 2021 and most of us, most of our recent cancellations I don't like all of our cancellations, regardless of whatever controversial things we said in the past, what's gotten us canceled is saying sex is real and humans can't change sex. So bringing that back to here, when people started doing that to me, I will say that I thought, well, this ain't my first rodeo, right? Like in my twenties, I did, uh, I made animation and a little bit of film and, comics about population and that was when i experienced just enormous crazy backlash where the the response to it was uh the word hysterical it, the response was evident of just a inability a refusal to discuss incommensurate this. Yes, an incommensurate response. So that was first. And then um, later when I made Sita Sings the Blues, I got a mostly really positive response, but a little bit of just totally wacko response from religious ideologues, uh, political religious ideologues, where it was just like, you know, they were just making stuff up and it was wacky and, you know, banning and rape threats and death threats and things like that. So I'd, I'd had that. And uh, also with my uh, copyright or copyleft advocacy, my advocacy against copyright, uh, totally wacko responses to that. There are some triggers that are simply religious. I regard, I regard certain issues as religious and people respond to them in a religious way and natalism is certainly one of those things like if you if you are remotely critical or or just not into it 
yeah, people say you're a baby hater and you want to kill their baby and you want them to never have sex. And I mean, they just hate it. They, they can't, it's like their, their brain just, you know, it's just like this drawbridge, drawbridge gets rolled up and the boiling oil comes out and we do not discuss that. Uh, and that happens even more with genderism. And of course, since I think that all of my ideas are rooted in reality and that I am perceptive of reality and concerned about reality, uh, then are we just in the in the age of increasing unreality or is this just always part of human psychology? Well, I have, I have a few things to say. One of them is that... Um, it, I don't mean this in a bad way, but it kind of cracks me up that you got death threats over copyleft. I, I, sorry, I don't mean to be like unsympathetic. Actually, I don't think I got death threats over copyleft. I got lied about and I got attacks over copyleft, but the death threats were from the, were uh, more from the Sita Sings the Blues religious okay. political ideologues. Okay, because I... I think if we wanted to have a hoity-toity intellectual conversation about copyright and copyleft, I might disagree with you. I'm not sure what your position is, but I don't have a problem with intellectual copyright, but I'm not going to get mad at you about it. I actually don't care. I mean, this is the thing with so many of these things is that I don't actually care that people disagree with me on most issues. I don't necessarily want to listen to their opinion, but... It doesn't mean, I mean, it just, it, I can't get that excited about copyright to be bothered to lie about somebody, you know, it's, it's like, I don't, anyway. Um, well, as a, as an author of uh, 10,000 books that have been translated into 20,000 languages, you should be upset that I am trying to destroy your livelihood and culture. Um, I'm a direct threat to your culture. Just as if I talked about population, I would be after your baby and you would have you to protect them. committing violence against me personally. Thank you. Yes, that's right. That's the spirit. <laughs> that's the spirit. Okay. <laughs> anyway, I used to think that, well, okay, I think it's getting worse. I think it's getting way worse. But um, one of my favorite stories from all of history is the homoousians and the homoousians. And this is about, oh, I don't know, a couple hundred years after after Jesus lived or didn't live or supposedly lived or whatever. This is 200 AD or current era or whatever you want to call it. Um, and the Homoousians, they were, they were two sects of Christians, uh, one of which was spelled Homoousian with an umlaut and one of which was spelled Homoousian without an umlaut. And one of them believed that the Holy Spirit, I mean, I'm sorry, that the, that the Holy Trinity was three beings in one. And the other believed that the Holy Spirit was one being in three. And one of them believed that this, the fires of hell were literal fires. They're, they're burning. And the other thought that they were spiritual fires. And hundreds of people we're killing each other over these distinctions. And it's pretty funny because they had a, they finally finally said, okay, we're going to sit down together. We're going to hash out the differences. And the, they, they finally agreed to stop killing each other and agreed to disagree 
because each one knew that the other one would find out soon enough whether the hell's the hellfire was spiritual or which seems like a reasonable response at that point given but anyway the point is people were killing each other over an umlaut and over just this absurd fine points of theology but were they really because humans are animals and if you crowd animals yeah yeah, yeah. they'll they'll kill yeah. each other certainly if you crowd humans so you know it it seems like there's this or that reason but well that's that's a great point and you just ruined my funny story thank you very much oh, I never you're tell welcome. It <laughs> um, no i no i think that's a really good point because that's another thing that is i think really important is that you know robert j lifton talked about how before people can commit any mass atrocity they have to have what they call a claim to virtue and they have to convince themselves that what they're doing is really good and not harmful. And the same is true in my personal life. I have never once in my life been an asshole. I have all, well, what the truth is, I have, of course, been a jerk. But but every time I've ever been a jerk, I've had it completely rationalized. And normally people don't don't say, okay, I'm going to do this terrible thing because I'm a terrible person. They do this terrible thing because they're going to develop natural resources. They're going to purify the Aryan race. They're going to, you know, whatever it is. So, yeah, they may have just been attacking each other because there was too damn many of them, too many rats in a cage. Yep, that's what we do. So um, I'm sure you've read the book Against the Grain about the earliest civilization, uh, the earliest states. Wait, is that Dick Manning? Uh, see, I don't remember. I Dick Manning wrote a book called Against the Grain. It's, a, it's just about early, early states and early civilizations. Yeah. And what I garnered from that book, which was kind of a relief, is that civilization has never been stable. And so all these humans, we all have this idea that, oh, we just made this mistake or that mistake, but you know, we can make this stable civilization. That's how civilization's supposed to be. And I now think like, no, like we're not stable we're not we do not live in harmony humans don't do that we live in tribes that are at war with other tribes uh yes i agree and three things yeah three things and i'm putting <laughs> up two fingers um one of them is that uh against the grain is a book by uh dick manning but it's not the book you're talking about against the grain is also a book by james c scott okay. which is the one you're talking about a deep history of the earliest states I just looked that up. I don't actually. Okay. Know. Okay. Um, Recommend it. So, so yes, um, there's this thing called Dunbar's number, which is the largest number of people you can have in a group that you can still have sort of direct democracy or direct participation. And it's 120, 150 people. And beyond that, you can't live in beyond that. You really need to start developing some sort of hierarchy because that's another thing is I say all the time, I don't think, I don't think humans are fundamentally evil. We could certainly have a discussion about that. Um, I think that humans are fundamentally contentious, but I think bears are too. And I think songbirds are, and I think bats are, I think everybody's fundamentally contentious. We all, we pick at each other. And so I have long thought that probably the most important invention of civilization is not the screw or the, the knife or the lever, the most important invention of civilization Wait, is- Wait, can I guess? 
Yes. Is it the Roomba? <laughs> um, I heard the other day that they now have Roombas that uh, are um, that mow your lawn. So that might that might supersede the Roomba, unless the Roomba is the foundation, in which case maybe it's more important. Lawnba. Is that what Any, it's no, I don't know. But anyway, I want to I want to hear. So what what is it? What is the it's, greatest invention? I know what it is actually. Well, it's, the, it's the Roomba. <laughs> um, no, it's the uh, it's what Lewis Mumford called the Mega Machine, which is a top down military style bureaucratic organization that allows thousands or hundreds of thousands or millions of people to work toward one end because humans are naturally just, I think we evolved to be contentious because small groups are the only sustainable groups are the only groups that are egalitarian can, can, can even possibly be egalitarian. They don't have to be. And once you get into these larger organizations, we become a danger to everything. And anyway, so we evolved that way, but we got around it through making Mumford talked about the early mega machines doing things like building the pyramids which is not coincidentally a giant tomb. Cause he said, that's where this whole thing ends is turning the entire world into first a megalopolis and then an Acropolis. And anyway, so to get around that, we have created this extraordinary thing, which today is called the corporation or the army that is capable of getting 10 million people to invade Russia or getting, you know, 5 million people to sell Coca-Cola. And it doesn't matter what you do with it. And that's one of the beauties, ironically, of the thing is you can have them, you know, you can have this bureaucracy, bureaucracy set up to kill Jews or kill forests or kill oceans or sell Coca-Cola and kill aquifers. It doesn't matter. You still have the same bureaucracy, the same form. And that has gotten so. But back to your point, yes, civilization is simply a secular a secular version of the second coming of Christ where what was the old wobbly song? We'll have pie in the sky by and by. Yeah. Pie in the sky when we die. And it's the same sort of deal, except we're going to get the technotopia. If we just get enough solar panels and we just get the, all this, then, then at last we will conquer death. We will live forever. I don't understand how even the sort of, I love the phrase people that used to nothing personal here about the atheists and I've got nothing against atheism, but I love the phrase euphoric atheists to describe the sort of religious atheists that um, anyway, that some of the technotopian euphoric atheists is just a secular heaven with someday we're going to conquer death and we'll live forever. It's like, huh, I think I've heard that before. I think um, religion is inherent to humans i think or at least it's at least as inherent as the urge to procreate i completely agree with you and i think that is one of our problems today in our quote secular end quote society and that's one reason that the sjw yeah. thing has turned so religious because i think we have this fundamental need for I don't know what, I mean, so, so please define religion. I'm agreeing with you, but please define religion. So we, so those in the studio audience can uh, understand. Here's the That's good. Oh, well, I don't want them to be confused. 
yeah, I'm going to have to think about defining religion. Do you have an answer? No, I have some attributes. So there's a communal aspect where people come together and they reinforce their beliefs with one another. They identify members of the in-group like us and members of the out-group like the SJWs. And then they engage in some form of uh, belief structuring where we articulate the values that are important to us and we make those more vivid by contrasting them with the values of the outgroup. Oh God, we're a religion. Well, I think we might be a cult, right? Oh. I mean, is it a cult, like a language is a dialect with an army? And I think the same is true of a religion. A religion is a cult with a state. No, no, <laughs> no. I, I'm I'm with you until the with the state because what was the guy's name in Antelope, Oregon? The Ra Ra Maha. Oh, the, oh, Rajneeshis, right. the Rajneeshis. Yeah, they didn't have a state. Well, they sort of did. They 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 took over a city. <laughs> they were that, and they're regarded. Oh, they're oh, wait, regarded so as saying, a cult. Okay, so wait, you're saying a religion is a cult with a state? Is that yes, what you're saying? Yes, a religion is a cult with a state. A language is a dialect with an army, and a religion is a cult with a state or state support. I think there's more to it. I because like I gen genderism is a cult, but then when it's taught in schools, it's a religion. It has the support of the state. By the way, I'm I'm pulling this out of my ass as I speak. So that's great. That's great. <laughs> um, no, this is really inspired stuff, Nina. Keep going. <laughs> what else can I pull out of there? A string of handkerchiefs, a rabbit. I I can't get away from the word cult having a negative connotation. And well, but same with religion. I mean, we're we're naturally culty, right? We're naturally tribal. I've I've had this fantasy of moving to the the country somewhere or the woods or something like that, but I don't want to be alone. So wouldn't it be nice if I had a little community there? And I'm just like, well, that would be a cult real fast. Well, okay. I I don't disagree with you. And I think that I think tribalism is okay, I'm gonna change the subject kind of. A place that I disagree with a lot of lefties and a lot of feminists is that I kind of like sports. And, well, I actually quite like sports. And I even kind of like football because I think football is what war is supposed to be. And there's that tribalism of, you know, go Broncos, go Raiders, when it is completely meaningless. I mean, once I recognize the meaningless of sports, then I think it's kind of fun. But there is this tribalism and you get there and you like insult the other side. And um, and I think and it's it's a way to sort of. Get out some tribalism in some in a way that is fairly innocuous. Having said that, I think it's completely ridiculous to have huge, you know, retractable stadium roofs. And it's it's just a great example of of the toxic excesses of capitalism, et cetera, et cetera. But actually, I think, I think religion does the same thing because religion, you know, what, what happens in a church? People get together, they sing, they pray. Like I'm all for prayer. Prayer is like a activity that absorbs lots of attention and energy and is harmless, just like football, right? 
it's different from football, though, Nina, because like you don't go to church on Sunday and line up in the pews against a, an opposing church and like shout slogans at each other. Well, you have Satan. You have like Satan church. or sin. Yeah, not at your church. We should have a, a church bowl. But these are these are activities that humans church bowl. love. Church bowl, exactly. <laughs> no, but they kind of do that. I I hear what you're saying, but they kind of do that. You know, I was raised Seventh Day Adventist, and the Catholics were the Antichrist. The Pope was the Antichrist, and you know they're the. I don't know. The Methodists make jokes about the Presbyterians and the Presbyterians make jokes about the Episcopalians. I don't, I'm making that up. I don't, I'm, I'm creating, I'm creating rumors of, of conflicts here. Um, but I think they do have those sorts of rivalries. Some. Well, praying is great, right? You can, I mean, and, and we like atheists think that it's stupid because it's ineffective, but that that's, it's, that's its grace and its glory, right? Just like football. If we say football's stupid because nothing's accomplished in football, but that's the point, right? It's it's a way for humans to be human, passionately human, without causing too much destruction. So I, I'm really enjoying this conversation and I'm I'm learning a lot. And I'm I'm still I still want to see a difference between a cult and a tribe and a religion, apart from the fact that I love what you're saying about it being state-sponsored, that it goes from a cult to when it gets state-sponsored, it's a religion. That's really interesting to me. But I, I think there's more. Oh, I think I could name it pretty pretty easily and, and seriously, like no, no Roomba jokes. Uh, I think a religion is able to, so here, here's what I would say. The mechanism of it being able to perpetuate itself depends on whether it requires a leader or whether it requires a set of values that can be imprinted and and copied and perpetuated. So if it can continue without a, a line of specific leadership, then it would be a religion. Oh, I disagree with that. Yeah, because the whole thing with the social justice warrior cults is that they they don't appear to have leaders in the in the but, way that historic cults have had. Like, I think that media, modern media, and the internet has really changed the requirement for charismatic leaders in cults. But the SJW is not a cult. Right. It's a religion now, but it's... Well, it's, it's not even a religion. So it, it's it is not? A, it's not a religion. Uh, it, it's an ideology? It, 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 it replaces religion for some people because it, prov it does provide a sense of purpose and it does provide a sense of... Like, it, it provides a story of an ideal world. So to some extent, it does replace what religion would normally have provided for people like this but it's, uh, it's adherence, I, I, the ideal kingdom it's right? adherents so are has... so culty i mean they do they have that reaction they have that that in group out group really strong in incommensurate reaction that we were talking about they do but i think that because there is no inherent supernaturalism there's no, uh, I forget what the word is, but there, there's a word 
for how you describe the beginning of the universe? There's no like origin story of, of how it begins. There's, oh, sure there uh, is. An SJW? No, there there really isn't. There's no there's no origin of the earth. There's no origin of of the humans. There's nothing like that. So a, a lot of the properties that you'd find in religion are not in the social justice ideology. But they have they have stories about how how we came here now. Like like I mean maybe they don't have the initial origin story, but they have these these myths. And by the way, a myth can be true. Just because I'm saying myth, I just mean that it's it's regarded religiously as a myth. Uh, uh, they have stories of colonialism and imperialism and white supremacy. All right, Derek, is am I right or is Nina right, or is none of us right? And remember that depending on how you answer, it's either going to be transphobic or misogynistic. This is not a political answer. This is a real answer. I think that it's it's I think that there are I, I think there are elements of all that are true. And I I think the, the I don't think there are there are obviously no cosmic origin stories, but there is original sin. And there is um there is there are saints. I mean I have seen this just I don't know whether it makes me laugh or cry. I have seen like beatified pictures of George Floyd murals where he has the Renaissance halo. And so there are saints. Um, um, rest in power. Well, I'm sorry. What rest in power. Yeah. George, George Floyd rest in power. Sorry. I didn't say that. I should have said that um, right. for, forever and ever. Amen. Yes. Or, or all women. Not in how, George how Floyd's case. Now, you wouldn't say that with George Floyd, given that he's a, a deified misogynist. Oh, okay. And I also disagree that SJW, oh God, I can't say it's a straight face. I also disagree that SJWs don't have a charismatic leader because they have Judith Butler, who is about as charismatic as it's possible to be. I did say that with a straight face. I can't. I have crew socks that wish they could be as charismatic as judith butler <laughs> um yeah and they probably are more comprehensible and useful yeah um i mean there, there are charismatic leaders but it's not like there's a single well and one. another question is i mean this is really one of the things i'm enjoying about this conversation is that is that it's making me rethink some stuff so is I hear what you're saying about a religion, a cult, a religion being a cult with a state. But at the same time, we could view the history of much of the history of Catholicism. And I'm not meaning to pick on Catholicism just because I was Seventh-day Adventist, but we could say it was for a lot of Christianity. Much of it was a cult. I mean, early on, it was recognized both within and without as a cult for the first couple hundred years. And, mm -hmm. and I guess that's your point that maybe with Justinian is when it changed to, or Constant, Constantine was when it changed from a cult to a religion. Sure. Right. Um, Any of these things, there's tons of cults. I mean, I was reading the new Testament last year. So I was finally reading the story of, of Jesus. Wow. Every, this is whatever. It's not like we haven't alienated everybody already, but these stories of Jesus, these gospels, I was like, Oh, okay. He was a garden variety cult leader. There were lots of them. 
right? One took off, but, but this is a, this was, there was not anything really extraordinary about, uh, about Jesus, except that his, you know, his cult took off, but there were tons of others. And that's not even, that's not even going to make people, that shouldn't make people mad at you. That's not even controversial. Well, saying Jesus is a garden variety cult leader is kind of unflattering. But there were and he, he was a fine cult leader. It's like, if you're going to, it's like, he was fine. He like, you know, an excellent choice of cult leader to turn into a religion. <laughs> I'm not making a joke here. If I had a choice between Jesus and whatever the guy's name was for Amrin Shi in Japan, the one who set off the cyanide in the, in the subways, I would choose Jesus. He's a, he's a much better, I'm not making a joke. I mean, obviously the other guy or an easy example of people in the United States, if I have a choice between cult leader, Jesus and Charles Manson, I'll take. Sure. I mean, but there, but there's so many to choose from always because it's also a, like an emergent behavior of humans in society that you have continual new crops of cults and cult leaders. Well, and this makes me think of something else that's pretty interesting. I remember reading in Tom Robbins back when I was reading him in my late 20s, early 30s about how I know that the, the quote ends with the Buddha is always killed on the road. And his point was, for the most part, a lot of the problems with religions are not with the originators who might have some really good ideas. I don't think he's talking about Charles Manson, but leave that aside. Um, a lot of cult leaders have really good, a lot of religious founders, we can use that language if we want, have really good ideas. And the problem comes with the people, this is what Tom Robbins is saying, the problem comes with the followers and then their followers who don't have the creativity or sense of humor to really understand what, what was being told and instead turn it into this ossified religion Oh, like a great example is, you know, Ray's Seventh-day Adventist. One of the things that was interesting and also and fun, but also a drag, was that you can't do anything like business-like or whatever from Friday night sundown to Saturday night sundown, just like Jews. Yeah, that's called the Sabbath. Yes. Yeah. And so it was great to have a day off where you don't watch TV, you don't shop, and we spent a lot of Friday night and Saturday like out in nature. It was wonderful. And it's a great idea. The problem is that instead of recognizing this for the day of rest that it was, uh, we would sometimes be counting minutes until the sun set over the mountains so that we could turn on a football game or that we could go to the movies. And there would be discussions about, well, what if the movie is closer to the mountains so that the sun is actually set at the theater? Can you leave before you leave when it's light and you get to the theater, but the movie doesn't start until the sun has gone down? And just all this legalistic nonsense took this pretty good idea and turned it into this onerous bit of legalism. And his, his point was that, you know, the Buddha might have had some good ideas, but the followers of the Buddha are going to be crazy just like the followers of the christians are going to be crazy and and well that's know, but that's actually true of the social justice warrior religion right it has great ideas many like i was really surprised to learn when i read the book cynical theories they they tried to translate some early judith butler into english and i was surprised to learn 
that it was Judith Butler who put forth the idea that gender and sex are separate things. And I'm like, oh, I believe that, right? Like, so some of my own radical feminist beliefs, materialist beliefs originated, apparently, probably not, but were popularized by Judith Butler herself. And I'm like, okay, not that terrible. Uh, not terrible at all, right? Like this is, she had some good ideas. Um, and certainly like a lot of the, most of the social justice warrior stuff is stuff that I've always believed in, you know, like gay rights and, and any sort of, you know, well, you know, like, you know, uh, anti-racism and anti-fascism, those are good ideas. So in a certain perspective, one, it's really weird. One could, especially because I hate so much of the SJW stuff so much, but you could read Culture Make-Believe as sort of an SJW, that's a book I wrote, as sort of an SJW Bible almost, because I talk about whiteness. I talk about, um, you know, the dominant culture. I in terms of, I talk about whites, non-white whites, you know, white, white as being not simply skin color, but a, but a culture. And I talk about all sorts of stuff that is, I thought at the time, pretty sophisticated. And I'm, I, I still like it, but I'm embarrassed where the whole movement is gone. And so this brings us back to antinatalism because one of the problems I think, and this is going to get more people to hate me, is I think, okay, I'm not, I'm not being ableist here in terms of like stupid, stupid, but I think people are fundamentally stupid. And what I mean by that, and I'm talking, okay, I love the line by R.D. Lang where in order to maintain this culture, we have to destroy the capacities of little children and we have to turn them into imbeciles like ourselves with high IQs if, if, if possible. And so I'm not saying low IQ as such, which would of course get me in more trouble, but I'm saying that people are imbeciles with high IQs, especially academics. And the reason I'm gonna say this is because I'm gonna go after two things here. Um, one of them is just postmodernism starts with the greatest premise in the world, which is how do you have all of these different competing narratives and we only know our own perspective and there's these competing social narratives like Chris, was Christopher Columbus this brave explorer or was he a horrible slaver, you know, and these competing narratives all are out there. Great question. How do narratives win? What does that mean about reality? And then they come up with the single stupidest possible answer, which is there are only narratives, but no reality. It's like, how do you get from this great question to the, to the stupidest possible answer? And then the same thing is true with queer theory. Ask the great question, which is, why is it that some sexual practices are, are valorized, to use their sort of word, and why is it that some of them are proscribed? Great question. I love that question. That's such an important question. And then their answer is the stupidest possible answer, which is because people have considered homosexuality, people have prescribed homosexuality and that's bad. Therefore, all prescriptions against all sexuality are bad. How could you come up with such a stupid answer to such a good question? And then this gets propagated all across society until, I mean, you've probably seen my queer theory, pedophilia jeopardy. And it's, it's like, 
freaking Judith Butler talks about how prescriptions, proscriptions against parent-child incest may do more harm than parent-child incest. And she still has an audience. It's like, I don't, so the point, the point, and my voice is getting all thin and reedy here. Um, My point is that I just, the same thing with the SJW stuff, same thing with Christianity. Hey, why don't you treat each other nice and love your neighbors and, you know, love each other. And then it takes 200 years for the homoousians to be killing each other over, over this. It's just, it's extraordinary to me. No, it's absolutely ordinary. And I think you're absolutely right that it's, it's rats in a cage. It's, this is, this is people packed in too tight. This is, but we take these good ideas and we turn them into crap um, very quickly. Yeah. The thing with Christianity is it's actually in the New Testament, the the falling apart of Christ's teachings happened all, pretty much immediately. Well, it's going to happen People immediately. At each other. Yeah. Yeah. We're human. This is why I have no hope. Yeah. Um, I say that you, I'm wearing a big smile right now. I'm like, I say this with happiness. <laughs> I have no hope. So Derek, since, since humans have really fucked up our turn at running the planet, which species would you nominate to evolve to take the, the next chance at managing Earth? Because there has to be a manager. It has to be set up like that. Well, it, it could. It could. It, we, we emerged. So if another species does, who, who deserves a chance to do it? Um, either... Uh... Yeah, I want to put the same caveat that Nina did that that it could be it could be everybody. Um, well, the, the question also is who manages you because ninety percent of the ba- of the of the cells in your body don't have your DNA. They're bacteria. They're all sorts of others. So you're actually this conglomerate anyway. So we all are. So who's in charge? That's true. I don't know. That's true. H- humans aren't destroying the planet. It's the bacteria, the bacteria within us. Guts. Mm-hmm. Their fault. Anyway. Um, if I were going to turn it over to some, if I had to turn it over to somebody else, it would either be, uh, mushrooms. And I don't mean magical mushrooms, although they can be certainly be part of it. Um, mushrooms because mushrooms already like move, uh, nutrients around forests from tree to tree. There'll be these mycelial networks that are connecting everybody and, if somebody in the middle of the forest isn't getting enough sunlight, so they're not getting enough uh, food from, from the sun or food from the, the energy to convert, they'll take it from somebody else and they'll give it to them. And so either mushrooms or bacteria, because bacteria are basically running everything already. Um, so those, th- th- those are who I would, those are who I would trust with it. I like it. I like the idea of uh, an intelligent mushroom race emerging. Maybe they're already intelligent. Yeah, I think they already are. Do they have Netflix or Hulu? I don't think so. So is that actually a sign of intelligence or a sign of lack of intelligence? Well, I saw a good documentary about it. (laughs) And put it on Netflix. I love the line by Douglas Adams about how humans thought they were the smartest creatures on the planet because they invented digital watches and nuclear submarines. And dolphins thought they were the smartest creatures on the planet because they didn't invent uh, digital watches or nuclear submarines. Is there a project or a book that you've done recently that you would like 
our listeners to, in particular, to go check out or anything else that you would like to bring attention to? Um, sure. I'll mention two books. There's Bright Green Lies came out last spring, and it's about how uh, we have been lied to about, you know, solar is not going to save the planet. It actually doesn't help the planet. It helps maintain industrial civilization. Um, and we go through exhaustively all of the claims that are made by the people who uh, promote wind, solar, et cetera, et cetera. Um, and I think it's a really good book. And then I have a book coming out next February or so that is really funny considering that I, like Nina, am a pretty much a teetotaler. Um, but it's about, it's called Marijuana, a Love Story. And it's how uh, legalization has been a complete disaster for the small farmers. Um, and actually it's a conversion, it's a transfer of wealth away from small farmers to big corporations. Um, and uh, along the way, I uh, describe the wackiness. I live in Northern California and I describe just the wackiness of cannabis culture, both the cool parts like uh, um, trimming was a great job for single mothers uh, because uh, they could trim at home while their kids are asleep or, and, and they didn't have to get babysitters, it paid well. And nowadays trimming is done legally, trimming has to be done at the place. Um, and also small farmers could make a living, can't make a living. So there's the good stuff like that. And also the bad stuff like the rampant theft, rampant sexism, rampant just insanity. And I make fun of, of a lot of the culture and uh, make fun of myself. I grow because I have Crohn's disease. And so it's really interesting. I was sort of poster child for that because I've never had a drink of alcohol in my life. I've never taken a recreational drug. And every night I drink marijuana juice which tastes completely awful, by the way. And it helps the Crohn's. Anyway, so one chapter, the first line of one chapter is for a time I was the worst grower in the world. And so I make a lot of fun of myself and make a lot of fun of everything I can. Okay. Well, we'll have to check that out when it comes out. And Bright Green Lies, I'm very interested in because I'm, I'm afraid to, to say this, but uh, I'm, I'm sort of a libertarian. And one of the things that's most frustrated me about environmentalists is how dogmatic they are about the solutions and how in a fantasy world they are about like how solar can fix things when the energy that is placed on a square inch of solar is very little and you need tons of it to be effective. And that requires a lot of manufacturing and a lot of maintenance and how it just like nets out close to zero eventually. Um, and opposition to nuclear, which might be the most energy efficient way that we, I, I don't know if that's true or not. That's my belief uh, that, that nuclear could provide a, a carbon free energy source. So I'm, I'm really interested to, to read uh, Green Lies because I'm, I'm curious to either have my uh, biases validated or to be disabused. And also the co-author is Lear Keith. Yeah, Lier and um, Max Wilbert. And um, and I'll, I'll do the spoiler, which is that, no, we don't like nuclear either. But our answer is really, this isn't going to surprise anybody, degrowth. You can't have infinite growth on a finite planet. And so it's degrowth and protecting wild places. And uh, what else? Oh, another thing I wanted to mention about this, 
is it's really interesting that just like people get shut down for you know by the by the the gender ideologues and they get shut down it's the same with with uh with this the solar people use the same solar and wind people use the exact same tactics um they really worked very hard to attempt to destroy uh jeff and ozzy's ozzy zenner's career jeff gibbs and ozzy zenner who made the movie they've worked very hard to destroy their careers it's all the same tactics are used all the same um I mean, this, and this is one thing, I just want to say this about the SJW stuff, too. I am not quite a free speed absolutist, but I'm pretty close in that years and years ago, 15 years ago, God, 25 years ago now, Ward Churchill wrote an essay attacking gerrymanders book in the absence of the sacred. And I asked Jeanette Armstrong, Okanagan Indian and writer and activist, what she thought of Ward Churchill's attack on gerrymander. And she said, if he didn't like his book, he should write his own damn book. And that's been so important to my career that if somebody writes something I disagree with, I don't say they should be banned. What I do is I write a better book. And so if you don't, not you personally, or you personally, I don't care. Like Nina, if you were to write a book, how copyleft is so great, and it really, really offended me, I would just write a book saying copyright is great. If, if presuming that I actually believe that much in copyright to bother, but I don't know that I would. Yep. And then people wouldn't be able to see your book because it would be under copyright and mine would spread freely. <laughs> exactly. And the point is, so, you know, if you, if you don't like what I say, fine, write a better book. And, but if, that's work. You yeah. bigot. <laughs> Yeah, exactly. And it's the same with the natalist, anti-natalist stuff, which, again, I'm explicitly not wading into more than I already have, except that, oh, God. Um, anyway, it's it's the same thing. If somebody writes something, an anti-natalist track, then somebody else should write a pro-natalist track. And they can call it Genesis. Go forth and multiply. And it'll be a really big bestseller. For sure. Anyway, well, thank you. If you ever want to do this again, I'd be happy to. Great. I'm so happy to finally have had a conversation with you. I've been an admirer of your work for a long time. Well, I've been an admirer of your work too. I really like your animated shorts. And features. There's also animated features. Whole features. Thank you for listening, Turfs and Trannies. This has been another episode of Heterodorks. Talk to you soon. Bye. Bye. Bye.